0: Hi, this is the Tangled Podcast, a show where I talk to people who are designing better ways of doing things. I'm Julian DiLorenzo. Whether in food production, energy, fashion, or the built environment, I'm interested in how we can use resources more efficiently and sustainably. This episode I'm talking to Samil Shaw. Samil is the founder of Enagaya, which is a company based in Bangkok that develops technology and techniques for growing spirulina in confined urban spaces you may be wondering what spirulina is, and why you'd bother growing it in a city. Samil talks about this in depth, but the short version is that spirulina is a type of algae. It grows through photosynthesis, so it removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. It is also very high in protein. Plus, it can be grown easily in the city, using vacant space, such as on office rooftops. This all means that if spirulina's popularity can increase, it can play a big part in helping to feed the world's growing population, while also slowing global warming. If you enjoyed the interview, please subscribe to Tangled. You could also rate the podcast five stars in iTunes, and please share it. You can find show notes for this episode at tangledpodcast.com. Okay, here is my conversation with Samil Shaw. To start with, I'm curious to hear
1: the story of how you went from studying and working in aerospace engineering to then eventually inventing a new system for growing algae on rooftops.
2: Okay, so I actually um, was working as an engineer at General Electric uh, in the power industry, and I came across um, some stories or or industry news about um, a postdoc at MIT who was trying to use microalgae to capture CO2 emissions from the power plant of the university and then produce biofuel from the microalgae. And I thought that this was a really interesting idea. Um, that was environmentally friendly, I I thought, and um, I didn't see anyone doing it in Asia, and I worked um, previously in, in Asia, so I, in the power sector, so I I thought it would be neat to, to kind of try something like this as an entrepreneur um, in in Asia, and so I left GE in 2008 um, and moved to Thailand, uh, where I had some contacts, and started going down the the technology development path of this. But I quickly pivoted away from biofuels because of economic and and sustainability factors, and then looked at animal feed production from the microbiology that we were uh, going to produce, and um then we kind of developed the technology in 2011 but we were building a pilot plant next to a rice mill where we were going to also uptake the co2 emissions from their small power plant and it got uh flooded by the by the big flooding in thailand in late 2011 and kind of destroyed so then we moved everything in 2012 to bangkok and uh, started putting our technology on rooftops, uh, one, to avoid flooding, and two, because that's where the space is uh, cost-effective in, in an urban environment under, you know, underutilized or unused rooftops. And um, yeah, and then just started working through um, learnings from technology development and, uh, and real implementation and application on a commercial scale. So that's, that's kind of the, the long and the short of it. And then, then when we started producing commercially in 2012, the quality of the spirulina was so good, we, we decided to start making food products from it instead of animal feed because, you know, we thought, you know, uh, why not eliminate the middleman of the of the animal and go directly to the, the main consumer.
1: Right. Um, so what makes your method different or better from other ways of growing it?
2: So it's traditionally grown in open ponds or natural lakes, um, which are kind of open to the risk of airborne contamination, um, either from things falling into the lake or pond or from rainwater diluting um, the water in, in the, 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 the man-made pond um, so that it um, loses its high alkalinity and high pH, and therefore, you know, you start to get a lot of other microorganisms that can live in that environment and contaminate it. So that's the, the predominant method that's used commercially or what, um, and then, in kind of research and lab scale there's these closed photobioreactors that are used but it's normally done on a kind of a small research scale because it's incredibly cost intense it's very very expensive so we said okay how can we find a solution that kind of is, is in the middle and has the advantages of low cost like an open pond so it's kind of on parity with their cost basis but has the advantages of a closed system of production and so you know we started looking at Using off-the-shelf componentry and interconnection and automation to reduce labor costs and all these things, and that's how we develop uh, our technology.
1: Yeah, right. Um, so, firstly, on a on a broad, longer-term scale, how how would you define success for Energia? Uh And then, if you are successful, I'm assuming that would mean A lot of people around the world are getting a lot more of their protein from spirulina, um, which would mean demand for meat would go down. Uh, So have you got much resistance from conventional food producers?
2: It's a good question. I think those questions are are all interrelated. So our vision of the future is by 2050 to have spirulina as a, a globally traded commodity of 20 million tons per year by dry weight. From a, from a niche level today of about 10,000 tons per year. So that's a huge increase, right? Um, and because by dry weight, it's, it's almost, uh, or it's basically 60% protein, it adds a lot of protein into the market. Now, we don't personally view this as competing with the meat industry because by 2050, food supply has to double, especially protein supply to feed the world because of population growth and income growth. Population growth, we all understand, right? Populations go from seven and a half billion to nine billion. So the number of people aren't doubling. But the problem is that, and it's a good problem, is that as people move from low income to middle income, their protein consumption as much as triples per capita. So, you know, the average person in, in uh, you know, rural Bangladesh, for example, consumes about 30 grams of protein per day, whereas the average uh, person in the United States or even Australia probably consumes closer to 80 to 90 grams of protein per day. And so uh, if you look at it in that context, you know, FAO published data in 2015 showing how much meat needs to increase and, it, and it's astronomical. You know, if we look at just fish, for example, it has to go from about 142 million tons per year of production in 2015 to more than 221 million tons per year of production by 2050 but there's not really a sustainable way to do that because wild ocean catch is plateaued and is even declining and aquaculture has a huge challenge with um, prevalence of disease vectors as you increase stocking densities you know because there's certain places where you grow it and and you know so if, if you need to have 80 million tons more fish all come from aquaculture which is what they project and you have all the disease prevalence and all these challenges that means that it's probably not going to be feasible then you need to have substitutes and that's why people look at things like cultured meats which is lab-grown meats they're looking at uh, you know alternative meats like crickets and uh, worms and things like this and and also spirulina and we think spirulina can can help take up a portion of this of this gap not all of it but a, a significant uh, you know, layer or piece of that. So I don't. I, I guess in conclusion, I don't view us as competing with the meat industry. I, I view us as kind of solving, helping, try to solve their sustainability challenge uh, to meet uh, the demand side of the equation between now and two thousand fifty. And um, that's the vision we have for Energia is helping enable that huge increase in spirulina production and consumption.
1: Mm. Right. Uh, and and I do take your point about. Uh, it being better to cut out the middleman of so instead of feeding animals the spirulina you can feed it directly to humans. But the the one advantage I suppose I'm just thinking aloud here of feeding it to animals is that they don't complain or they don't ask for something else. Um, whereas humans have pretty ingrained dietary habits. Um, so I'm assuming you've come up against cynics. Maybe who assume spirulina is just another gimmick or diet fad um, or it's not the real deal, how have you dealt with that
2: uh, it's a great question so we have a lot of you know for the for the we don't encounter a high percentage of cynics right We probably encounter a much larger percentage of people who just um, don't know what spirulina is um, so it's it's kind of more about awareness raising and then you know obviously there are small Percentage of of the population who are the cynics, right? So if we look at those two groups, the, the people who don't know what spirulina is, we are, you know, that's why we make mainstream food products. We're not trying to convince them to consume spirulina tablets or spirulina powder or spirulina in raw form by itself. We're trying to integrate spirulina as a key functional ingredient in mainstream food products. So not at the the kind of the nominal, just for the name, kind of niche level of 1% or something like that that you might find it um, mostly today, but we put, you know, 5, 7, 10, even 15% by dry weight of spirulina because we have this taste advantage of our, our production technology and we can incorporate that much spirulina into a functional food product and not change the taste. Um, of that food product so it still tastes good and then people can consume it and they get a lot of nutritional benefit from the spirulina. So we make energy ball snacks, cold soups, ice creams, pastas, things like this. And we think, you know, the only change is it it affects the color, but if we make the right food products like pasta, you know, people are accustomed to squinting pasta now, so they, they actually like the dark or deep green color of the spirulina pasta. They've also seen it with spinach pastas, right? Energy snacks are normally you know, energy bites they're dark anyway because of chocolate and date and things, so the color isn't really an issue. you know things like this. If we integrate it in products where people don't notice the taste, get a lot of benefit from the spirulina um don't really notice the color or are unaffected because of expectations of the color, then that's the way we get it into the mainstream and and the education piece of it is then people trying it, people learning about the food they eat and and a lot of it is happening organically anyway because You know, in 2017, in January, The New York Times listed Spirulina as one of its top 10 food trends for 2017. And there's a growing awareness in Europe. There's a big awareness in Australia already. So as people learn more and more about what it is, um, that biggest group of people who are unaware start to know uh, how it benefits them and, and, and adapt it. The cynics, we, we have a, a documentation library of third-party pu- published papers on all the nutritional benefits of spirulina that we keep in a Dropbox folder, and we share that freely with anybody who who has questions or wants to to know more about it. And we encourage them to not take our word for it. We don't try to grandiose or self-market spirulina as a fix-all for anything. Or you know, we say you know, Hippocrates uh, said that our food should be our medicine, and spirulina is, has a lot of. Positive nutritional benefits, which you can see from all the nutritional analysis that's done, uh, presented and published by the USDA on their website, you know, government organizations. So do your own due diligence and research then and, and see what you think of it. And if you want to consume it, great. If you don't, also fine.
1: Right. Um, so your your process is patented. So if people want to set up a spirulina farm on a rooftop, what kind of process do they have to go through with you? Do you keep ownership of the equipment and lease it, or, or what's what's the, your model?
2: We actually sell and have a licensing structure, um, and there are lots of different production techniques. You know, so it's um, they don't even have to use our our technique. And, and the broadest sense of our technique is is you know difficult to patent candidly speaking right it's it's really more the specifics of what we do in certain process steps that are are patent pending um but but the thing is um you know we want spirulina to be a 20 million ton per year commodity by 2050 as i mentioned and and we don't expect nor would anybody expect that to be a, a monopoly by us there needs to be lots of players in the space there needs to be lots of producers we want to encourage the development of that we, we view our system as a as a platform where people can use it to produce. They can improve upon it themselves. They can feed improvements to us, and we can even try to help them monetize it in the future, kind of like, you know, iOS and the App Store and this type of thing, you know, building apps and and getting a a portion of the revenues. We we really just want to enable technology pieces um, and even publish that information um, to make it easier for large-scale production. So what I mean by that is, like, we're working on a low-cost organic media that can meet organic certification requirements in, in the most stringent places like the EU, and we'll publish that, you know, and, and we'll provide information on how to use that with our system. So then if people want to buy with our system, they know they can get technical support from us on exactly how to use that. Or if they want to just use it in their own production, design whatever they're using, that's fine too. You know, we this is a recipe we know works with this these strains of spirulina we're working on a recipe for using seawater and, and part of that's coupled with the organic media solution, but using seawater to grow spirulina cost effectively you know, what's the right percentages and blends and how to do that We plan to publish that information as well. Once it's, once it's completed, because we want to, you know, if we want 20 million tons per year of spirulina production by 2050, um, using fresh water to grow it, even though it has a much smaller water footprint than other crops and meats using fresh water is just not we think a smart answer. We want to we want to use as much seawater or brackish water as possible because it needs the alkalinity and the uh, you know it needs uh, the salts to grow anyway. So why use fresh water and add it? Why not just take water that already contains it to grow the spirulina?
1: Yeah, that that's fascinating. Um, to Just pivot a little bit. I think you you seem to be a realist when it comes to environmental protection. I've heard you talk about the fact that people aren't going to stop flying anytime soon. So it's much better to try to think of ways to offset those carbon emissions. Um, But do you envision a time when spirulina production will actually be able to make a genuine dent in atmospheric carbon dioxide?
2: It's a great question. Um, I think one of the challenges is um, how the spirulina practically can do that. So what I mean is um, if you're just looking at using it to absorb CO2 from the atmosphere, um, even at current levels of around 0.4% CO2 in the atmosphere, that's not enough to get good productivity and growth rates from spirulina, which is why All producers, you know, normally use another inorganic carbon source like um, sodium bicarbonate or they uh, use bottled CO2 and they pump CO2 into the tanks or into their ponds or whatever. Um, So the, the best way to do that is kind of back to the genesis of why and how I kind of started this whole thing was if you can put large spirulina farms next to um, industrial CO2 emitters like breweries or power plants or things like this and siphon some of the CO2 rich gas into the tanks to grow the spirulina because it needs about 1 to 2% CO2 so 0.4 in the atmosphere is too low you know 8% coming out of a power plant is is much more than is necessary because um, that's kind of the concentration of CO2 and in, in, in power plant exhaust is usually around 8% give or take. Um, you you know, if you can dilute that and, and pump it into a bunch of tanks, then you can make, uh, you know, kind of an impact on uh, on the net carbon footprint. Um, it's going to take a lot of work to get to that stage, though, because you have to site spirulina farms next to power plants. You need to, you know, uh, so you need to fight in the right ones. And, and power plants are such concentrated emitters of CO2. You would need a really massive spirulina farm to make any significant percentage dent. In the CO2 emissions of the power plant. So um, I I think it it helps. Um, I don't know um, if direct absorption is the way to look at it as opposed to, you know, another view is the offset. So spirulina as a protein source is much more sustainable carbon footprint wise than all of the other, you know, kind of high protein foods, ergo meats, right? Um, so if you are substituting um, meat consumption even if it's in some percentage like a ten percent of a person's diet per per day or per year as opposed to you know completely converting people to be vegetarians or vegans um, if you look at large whole scale adoption then then you do have a, a huge positive impact on the carbon footprint of the world uh, through uh, substitution uh
1: are there are there any books or other resources that have shape the way you sort of think about sustainability or urban agriculture or environmentalism um, or even just books that have helped shape your worldview in general?
2: Yeah um, I'm not sure about the the urban agriculture and the sustainability piece of it that I I tend to get a lot from like industry publications and news (laughs) stories and things like this rather than books but books itself that have shaped my worldview there's, there's quite a few. I'm I'm a huge fan of Malcolm Gladwell. So outliers, tipping point, um, blink, these types of things. Um, and then, uh, you know, some books like Freakonomics and super Freakonomics and really kind of understanding what's driving, uh, human behavior and how do people succeed and what are the, what are the limitations? What do people want? Uh, you know, uh, Daniel Goldman's, uh, um uh, um, books on basically uh, uh, emotional intelligence and social intelligence. These types of things are also um, things I've read, which I I've enjoyed, and they've kind of shaped um, how I do. But but yeah, I would say Malcolm Gladwell is a, a big one, I, and I like so a lot of TED talks have been very influential. Like Melinda Gates' one on you know what can uh, what can NGOs and public sector learn from Coca-Cola, right? About distribution and low cost solutions to things, and then Simon Sinek's talks about, you know, um, start with why and, you know, we're basically around like what really motivates people and behavior and, you know, several others are, are you know, I think quite, um, quite influential in my, my way of thinking.
1: What have you changed your mind about since you've started Energia? Well,
2: I, you know, I, I mentioned like I originally started it with the idea of having come from the energy sector of trying to find, uh, you know, another alternative to, to, you know, uh, biofuel or, or, um, not, you know, trying to find another source of biofuel. So an alternative to mainstream, uh, fuels and, 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 and being involved in the energy sector. And then I've kind of pivoted to food. And, and one of the main reasons was, you know, when I look at the economics of, of biofuel, um, they don't make, um, they're very challenged because if you convert, fuel from volume to mass so from liters to kilograms the price of one kilogram of fuel is even at really high oil prices is still like around 50 to 60 euro cents or dollars you know or 50 to 60 cents on the dollar or on the euro right if you if you convert uh if you look at animal feed that range is two to ten euros or dollars per kilogram and if you look at um, human food that ranges six to a hundred dollars per kilogram or euro per kilogram and so the economics are much better to go with something that's higher up in the necessity versus the luxury kind of scale of goods um, and but if you and then the other piece of it which was really more the environmental rationale is you know biofuels i, I kind of struggled with the sustainability as i learned more about that model because traditional oil capacity and regular fuel capacity is refining capacity limited. So it means, you know, the premise under um, the clean development mechanism of the UN is if you produce one gallon or one liter of biofuel, you're preventing one liter or gallon of regular oil from being turned into fuel. And so you have a positive environmental impact because the biofuel is kind of a self-sustaining circular loop. Because the plants that you were you use to produce it then grow and reabsorb the CO2, and, and so it's a circle, right? And so you leave that liter or gallon of fuel in the ground, and that's better for the environment. The fallacy of that is that um, because uh, traditional fuel is refining capacity-limited, They would still people will still pump as much fuel as they want uh, or as much oil as they want out of the ground and refine it all. You now just have additional supply on the market because of the biofuel production. And so the total price of fuel drops below until you reach some threshold where the economics don't make sense to pump oil out of the ground anymore. But because it's such a low cost base in places like Saudi Arabia, that threshold is very, very low. Um, When oil will start stop getting pumped out of the ground, it's much lower than the cost of biofuel production. So, so the, when you look at it that way, what happens is you're just kind of adding more supply to the system, which lowers the marginal price of a liter or a gallon of fuel a little bit, and that enables more people to drive, right? So you have low cost cars in India and more people drive. So you don't actually help the environmental uh, footprint or the carbon footprint of the world at all through this model. If you look at it kind of really the way market dynamics work and holistically, and and that, that's when I quickly kind of, between those two rationales, I quickly dumped out of any thoughts of biofuel and said, okay, how can I move to something else that makes more economic and environmental sense uh, for the world?
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting example of unintended consequences. Very, very frustrating for people who, I suppose, have have good intentions, but nevertheless end up not coming out with a solution that's really very helpful. Um are there, are there any other people or projects working in the, the urban agriculture space um, that really interest you?
2: Um, yeah, you know, I've met some folks in, um, in France, like, who are doing, uh, you know, urban uh, vegetable gardening using uh, novel kind of uh, uh, constructs where they get more surface area for the, the plants to grow on, you know, when it's uh, kind of, you know, vertical cylindrical pipe structure or hanging structure or something like this uh, on rooftops or indoor i've seen them um, some interesting ones in in japan that they're doing uh, uh, they always have some really interesting and amazing technologies that they try there um you know urban beekeeping i think is also really interesting i I've, I've, I've enjoyed following that a bit um i don't have any direct experience with with any of these myself i, I do know some people who've tried them here in uh, Bangkok, and again, as I mentioned in France. Um, um, but uh, I think all of these ideas are fascinating because if if urbanization trends continue, and seventy percent of the world's people are living in an urban context by you know uh, two thousand fifty or twenty one hundred, depending on the projections you you look at, um, you know it, it makes a lot of sense to produce more food where possible in cities.
1: Definitely. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything that I haven't mentioned that you'd like to, to talk about? Um,
2: I think the more that we can distribute, uh, discretize and democratize production of of our food alternatives or food commodities um, is helpful, right? So traditional agriculture used to be a very discretized uh, Industry, you know, hundreds of years ago, and now it's kind of by economics become a lot more centralized into big farms because the small ones just can't can't operate cost effectively anymore. And and my hope and one of the things we're trying to do with spirulina production is we have a a rural farming model where we work with um, low income communities in India and Bangladesh, and we provide our technology in a centralized collection center, which is also a technical support center, and we teach them how to grow spirulina using our system. And we agree to buy up to 80% of the production that they, they grow, as long as the quality is good, which it should be based on our technique and our teachings, um, and continuing ongoing technical support from the, the people in the community who work for us. Um, the reason why we buy 80% is because we want them to consume 20% for their own household, uh, nutritional health. So it's a contract plus subsistence farming model uh, in combination by doing this, we're trying to not only increase the production base, but also increase awareness of spirulina because people are growing it and consuming it. And also so they'll learn more about it um, and learn about its versatility. You know, so and also uh, increase uh, income levels in these low income communities. So, so provide livelihoods, um, specifically focusing on women and older population groups because our system has automation. So it doesn't require a lot of heavy lifting or, or large amounts of, of labor time per week. So it can be an additive income stream to households as opposed to replace replacement income stream. So by doing this, you know, Malcolm Gladwell had talked about uh, what people really want is complex tasks with autonomy and a risk reward equation that says, Um, You know the harder they work the more they would benefit right and that was in his book He he described that was the difference between ancient Chinese rice farmers Who worked 3,000 hours per year and had happy lives and were really challenged and 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 enjoyed their work versus agrarian Europeans who worked 1,500 hours a year uh, as half the time uh, and and were mostly less happy in their work because they were serfs they were working for somebody else it didn't have a risk-reward equation and, and you know, that type of a crop style of, of um, you know, having uh, animals that were just grazing or what have you was not complex work. Uh, so it wasn't so rewarding, whereas rice farming is very complex. Rice farmers in China had a very fixed plot. If they produce more on that plot uh, by their own uh, hard work and, and ingenuity, they gained more rice to sell. They made more money. Um, so So that's the comparison. So if we can bring a complex thing like Spiralina to people. It's challenging work where they can, they can uh, uh, you know, uh, benefit monetarily from improved production. Um, and they have autonomy to do that um, with guidance and, and coaching. Uh, I think we can bring a lot of, of ideally, happiness, livelihoods, nutrition, and income, uh, uh, and awareness of Spiralina all to rural communities. And I, that's kind of a, one of our major uh, initiatives and hopes uh, that that we're working
1: through. Samil, such interesting work. I appreciate you taking a bit of time out from doing that work to, to speak to me. So, thanks a lot.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the interview.
1: Okay, thanks for listening. You can find show notes with links to all the people, projects and books that were mentioned in the conversation by going to tangledpodcast.com. If you have feedback, let me know on Twitter. I'm at Julio underscore. That's H-O-L-I-O underscore. If you liked the show, please share it and subscribe to Tangled in whichever podcast app you use. You could also rate the show in iTunes, which would be a huge help. And finally, you can sign up to my email newsletter. I'll let you know when new podcast episodes are released, and I'll send you a monthly list of good books, articles, and other podcasts to read and listen to you can sign up at tangledpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll speak to you next time.